0: You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I haven't spoken to my next guest for maybe four or five months, and I get the impression from knowing her over the years on a professional basis that she may be almost like a caged tigress at the moment. Her name is Magda Virzyczka. <laughs> She's the founder and CEO of the JSE-listed Signia Group. You, you must be champing at the bits at the moment for various reasons, Magda.
1: Oh hi, I'm Lindsay. Um unfortunately it feels like a little bit of a, a you know kind of groundhogs day in that um every single day is the same. I mean Signia is an essential service because we pay pensions and so you know I can go to the office, but literally we have, you know, ten percent of our staff complement in the office and we are all spread over many flaws. So you end up living a life where, you know, I guess in the last um six weeks now, I've seen eight people and i've interacted with about eight people so you know that is not what we are designed well other than virtual interactions clearly but but physically yes. mm. and that's not what we as you know human beings are designed to do we are social animals so um you know this is really truly um an awful experience
0: yes i mean normally you would see eight people every day It'd probably be more even
1: Indeed. I mean, normally you would, you know, interact with people in different ways. You would travel. You would have a little bit of a change of scenery. Whereas, you know, with the lockdown measures, you literally are not only kind of trapped with the same people having the same conversations. You're also trapped in a you know, very limited space. And I think what makes it so much more difficult in South Africa is that there is no end in sight because South Africa went into this uh, lockdown mode. What I consider to be, you know, way too early. You know, we've never allowed and have not allowed the infections to kind of even, never mind flatten the curve. We we killed the curve, and so we haven't allowed the infections to kind of spread at a natural rate, where you potentially have, you know, this prospect of developing a bit of a herd immunity across the population. Um, so we are living in a lockdown where you know the rate of infection is negligible, the number of people who have been infected to date relative to the rest of the world is negligible. Um, and it's very difficult to say, well, what is the purpose of this? And because in the meantime, we've managed to kill the economy, whatever was left of the economy in South Africa. Um, so, so what was the purpose? I mean, and I can understand, get the healthcare services ready, so maybe the six weeks. But there doesn't seem to be any end in sight to this lockdown going forward. So, um, you know, if you said to me, do I believe that our National Command Council, which is in charge of running the country, actually has a coherent plan for somehow reopening the economy while at the same time coping with peaking inflations and an exponential inflation curve? I don't think they do. I think they're making the rules
0: up on the side. There's so much praise for the administration led by President Sir Ramaphosa. And then suddenly everyone's saying, well, wait a second. No, this is actually not right. It's been too draconian, 70,000 troops <laughs> on the streets. Uh, you, what you said was that the curve hasn't been flattened. The curve has been killed. The economy that you say, which was on a life support machine anyway, has been killed. Yeah. And it's almost been switched off. So it's, it's not dying, but it's on, it's on its last legs and breathing its last Indeed. breath. So what do you do from here? What what does one do from here? Because Zoran has now got a very tricky political juggling act to do and economic juggling act to oversee.
1: Indeed, I mean, and the, the problem with this whole situation is that you know there are no positive answers. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, if you open the, up the economy, um, you will see the, the exponential in infec- infection rate increasing and you will see people dying you don't open up the economy you have hunger you have poverty you have people dying of different diseases and different reasons and social violence and unrests and so on so you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't at the same time you know politicians are politicians they respond to political pressure so for instance you know EFF on the left wing side of this equation is Absolutely loving this because, you know, every single unemployed person queuing in that queue for 15 hours to get their food parcel in the township is their future potential voter. Mm. So you have EFF calling for complete lockdown forever. As far as concerned, this can go on forever. Um, and on the other hand, you know, we don't really have an effective opposition party. Um, to launch any particular challenges. And then, you know, me being me, I did go to the top constitutional silk in South Africa to find out what rights we as citizens of South Africa have in this situation because, you know, I'm just looking at this humanitarian crisis developing in townships and, you know, you, you just literally want to cry. And what I was told is that we have absolutely no constitutional rights whatsoever. And we can do nothing about the decisions that are being made by government, because whatever decision we challenge in a constitutional court, you know, courts have their limits. There's always a judge who is a person. And when presented with however cohesive an argument it might be, or coherent an argument it might be to reopen the economy, on the other hand, government will come in with the argument of human life. We are acting to save human life. And here are the death yes. statistics from Spain and Italy. And they will win every time. So it doesn't matter what one challenges, and one would have to be very granular. Um, doesn't matter what one challenges, government will win. So, and just, before so, go on,
0: just before you go on, Magda, sorry to you, Are you saying then that political opportunism is winning over sanity? I if I can put that- it crudely.
1: I think political autocracy is winning. And and I think the fact that, um, you know, so Cyril Ramaphosa, as much as optically he's, you know, great looking president, he has always been a leader by consensus and not a leader by individual decision making. And so at a time where strong decisions are required and those decisions should come from the president of the country, uh, the decisions are being made by a collective and the moment you have, I think, I believe there are 22 ministers in, in this National Command Council. And the moment you put 22 people in the room and every decision has to be made by consensus, you, you get to this very arbitrary and draconian system that we have in South Africa. And some of the rules are so ridiculous, you know, they they laughable. Um, so, for instance, no e-commerce is allowed other than for basic goods and basic goods are you know a list of 10 things that you can buy yes um so so e-commerce no platforms selling services are allowed which basically has killed the entire sme sector of of the south african economy um you know our largest sector was always tourism okay so so that is dead for the next you know couple of years i mean the the you know the the um, secondary effects of this random decision making. We, we are allowed to exercise between the hours of 6 in the morning and 9 in the morning but it only gets light at 7.30 so it's really 7.30 to 9 in the morning, which basically means that everyone is out at the same time <laughs> mm. <laughs> running and exercising. So, so, so where is social distancing? Where is any logic? If you go to you know the townships, There is no social distancing whatsoever. Unemployed people are milling around in droves in the streets. No one is wearing any masks. Um, But at the same time, infections have not reached the townships because we killed the curve. So, you know, the the whole situation is like, um, you know, it's it's just watching human tragedy happen and being completely powerless to do anything about it. And I have tried.
0: Do you think do you think the situation has now become hopeless? Do you think that there is, is now a policy vacuum? Do you think that even Mr Ramaphosa with his team will be sitting down and saying, okay, there was a nice article about us in the FT because we've only got a certain amount a certain amount of people dying and a certain amount of in- infections compared to the rest of the world? But unfortunately, listening to Magda Virzichka with Lindsay Williams on a podcast the other day, they might say to themselves, well, actually, that's not the point here. We've actually stuffed up an economy. And You just sort of, not glibly, but you threw in a comment just now about small and medium enterprises. They won't recover for a couple of years. We can't afford a couple of months, let alone a couple of years.
1: Absolutely. Lindsay, says, so the reality of it is from everything that I hear from a variety of sources and um, is that the reasonable voices within that National Command Council. So, for instance, Minister of Finance, C. Bowen, mm-hmm. they're not listening. So, so, you know, Economic Advisory Panel, which advises Sir Ramaphosa. They're not listening to the economists either. Um, Actuarial society put together, you know, people who work with statistics, numbers, um, you know, health statistics put together very coherent, both models and uh, arguments for reopening the the economy in stages. They're not listening. So one needs to, to, you know, that leads you to believe that the, the collective is, you know, more than 50% of the collective is made up of people who actually either have vested interests in this economy collapsing, or actually don't understand what crisis they are dealing with, and don't understand the, the premise of, you know, an economy and a functioning economy. Because, you know, otherwise, how do you explain what is happening in South Africa at the moment?
0: I've always thought over the years that I lived in South Africa, which uh, totaled t- uh, 28 until I, I recently temp- temporarily left, I've always thought, that I found it very strange that there wasn't mass social unrest, as there have been in mm. incidents over the last couple of hundred years in, in other countries. And I thought, well, maybe it's just because we are numbed into submission. Maybe it's because there's 11 different languages. Maybe it's because we don't really like each other in South Africa. But I think if there's ever a time that there is going to be a cohesive mm-hmm. movement for social unrest, it could be now. Do you think it might happen?
1: Absolutely. I give it I give it two weeks. I mean it's my little bit of a thumbsack, but I literally give it two weeks because if you look optically at the scenes in almost, you know, every township, rural area where people are queuing for food, queuing for food parcels, you know, that is not something I've seen, you know, I've been in this country since nineteen eighty one. That is not something that i have ever seen here before but people are queuing for hours so you know a five kilometer long queues 20 people thick forget social distancing queuing for 15 hours to get a food parcel so how how sustainable is that um so i suspect that within the next two weeks you will have people literally taking to the streets to protest and because you can't do it through the court system as i have learned and i think you know the BAT, which was the tobacco manufacturer they were going to to take um, the government to court over the ban on cigarette sales um which has just enabled illicit cigarette market to operate but they were going to take the government i assume that they've received exactly the same legal advice that i have received um that there's absolutely because they've withdrawn you know, they, they caught a challenge to the ban on cigarettes. Yes. Um, so, you know, given that we've got no legal recourse to try and force government to start making accountable, reasonable decisions, then you will get down to the point where hungry people will storm the barricades. And, um, or alternatively, just everyone will, you know, wholesale start ignoring the regulation and do whatever they want to which is already happening in townships but I think it will spill over um, and I don't believe that you know this government has the as much as you know that the entire South African army has been deployed um, onto the streets but really again it's, it's um, you know marshalling around um, townships um, I don't believe that this government has the never mind the appetite, but um, can afford to um, start firing, you know, rubber bullets and uh, smoke grenades because, you know, then you're back to the scenes of apartheid era. So the moment people stop complying with anything, so stop complying with you stay in your township, you're not going to work and start, you know, massive movement, um, then all these regulations are just going to come crumbling down. Um, and I think that's probably where we're heading.
0: What about uh, the political opportunists? I used that f- phrase earlier on, I use it quite a lot. I- have a look at the political organization that you mentioned earlier on, the left-leaning, uh, the far-left-leaning mm. oh, yeah. EFF. Do you think that they, as you say, they're licking their lips, they're rubbing their hands together <laughs> and saying, so this lovely. is our moment now, this is our moment to eat into mm-hmm. the ANC power base. The DA is nowhere. I'm sorry for anyone that's Correct. votes for the DA, Correct. the DA has Correct. disappeared, it's completely anonymous. So So you've got the EFF and the ANC. ANC under pressure Mm -hmm. for reasons beyond its control, but it could control what was beyond its control, if you understand my phraseology. But the EFF Mm -hmm. now, probably ready to pounce, would you not say?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, they are advocating for, as I said, complete lockdown to continue for as long as possible because every hungry unemployed youth is a voter for EFF. And, um, you know, if... I can take, you know, one little kind of dipstick measure of this. You know, I often use Twitter. And the moment I start tweeting about reopening the economy or, you know, criticizing what's happening, the attacks I get, the bot attacks that I get, all of those are coming from EFF. Some of them obviously EFF, some of them kind of covert EFF, but I'm getting attacked personally by EFF. So, you know, in Zuma era, I used to be attacked by state security and the Guptas. Um, so I knew where the bots were coming from. Took me a little bit of time to figure out where the bots are coming. But they're coming from EFF. So they are trying to squash any voices of dissent in terms of anyone who is rashly trying to argue um, for, you know, more measured approach to the lockdown. So, so. And, and, you know, social media is the obvious platforms for being able to do that. If one opens a more reasonable publication, like Business Day, um, you know, every single day you have opinion pieces, you have articles, all, you know, business leaders talking about economists, um, talking about reopening the economy. And obviously there you don't have this kind of measure of of, um, political attack because they're just static articles. The moment you touch the social media, Mm. EFF comes out in
0: droves. We'll sort of sum that up in a couple of minutes when we end this interview. But uh, let's have a look at the capitalist side of, of what's going on now. And you've got to put on your investment hat now, uh, Magda. And incidentally, what I was thinking in my head was you are a natural target because you're so vociferous and you're so outspoken. But again, maybe we wrap that up at the end here. Let's have a look at what's happening in the United States of America, for example. There's just been another figure out, and it was about about 45 minutes ago. million people in one week filed for Mm -hmm. initial jobless claims. That's more than 33 million in seven weeks. This is Mm -hmm. unbelievable. This is the Mm -hmm. collapse of the world's largest economy when it comes to people going out and earning money. And I don't think people quite understand, Mm -hmm. especially the people that trade, for example, the stock market. Because the stock market, with 10 minutes to go to the opening, the futures market on the S&P 500 is up (laughs) 1.5%. How can this be? (laughs) I
1: don't know. Because you do realize that the US market, given what has happened to to earnings of corporates, is at its highest valuation levels ever. Yes. Because in terms of the PE, the E has collapsed. There is no earnings line. So you know, I'm amazed at, at what has happened in terms of the stock markets because we do know that you know stock markets tend to be irrational and in the short term stock markets react to sentiment rather than actual real news. But if you look at the US stock market and if you take into consideration the fact that the earnings of most companies have collapsed in terms of PEs, so the E has collapsed. Yes um, then the US stock market is you know, at its highest valuation level ever. And, you know, when these kind of things happen, invariably there is a reality check at some stage and it all comes crashing down. So to me, you know, a real reality check was watching Warren Buffett, um, you know, and uh, do his virtual ATM this year, you know, last week, I think. And, you know, he was talking about, well, living as a baby through the 1929 crash. And the fact that, despite a few, you know, stops and starts, particularly in the first year, it actually took the Dow Jones index twenty years to recover to the level that it was at in nineteen twenty nine. Um, and you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know whether we're heading for for the same situation here, but certainly, given the valuation levels at the moment. Of, you know, and and this completely irrational kind of exuberance in the stock markets that we have seen in April. Um, you know, I I think we are heading for deep disappointment, but you know, on the other hand, US is reopening everything. And uh, it does seem, you know, watching Donald Trump, it does seem that he's basically saying, well, he doesn't really care about, you know, how many people die in the process. So there's no rational, measured unlocking of the economy. It's kind of, oh, well, the economy can't stay locked down forever. So, you know, let it, let
0: it be. There's another phrase that that I've used on occasion, and it's um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So you can open up as much as you like, but I don't know. You could open up the whole of Cape Town. You can open up the whole of Johannesburg. You can start flying planes again. I don't really want to get on a plane at the moment. You do because you're one of those uh, people that uh, (laughs) likes to go out and annoy people and and, and sit in meetings and be an agitator, if you see what I mean, without being rude. But I don't know that the majority of the population wants to do that. There will be a few people that will say... Oh, isn't it fantastic? I can go and see Bill and Jim and Jane again, mm-hmm. uh, but on the other hand, yeah it's um yeah. even if you opened up, I don't think the people could would be forced to d- drink. You can open a, a shop and a lovely restaurant and you've got the best food ever. But do people want to go yeah. there? I'm not so yeah. sure, Magda.
1: So, I, I, I believe, you know, I agree with you. So, so, first of all, you know, I'm not advocating for a complete unlock of everything and life goes back to normal. Life will never go back to normal, or at least not for the foreseeable future. You have, you know, all I'm advocating for is a measured, level-headed, uh, statistics-based approach to lockdown. Yes. So, you know, a few months or a couple of months down the line, we do know some data points. So, we know who the vulnerable people are. You know, and it is not a healthy twenty-five-year-old woman. Um, so, so you know who the vulnerable people are, and they definitely need to be protected, you know, and and sheltered. You also know that, given what has happened psychologically, you know, I firmly believe that some people will never recover. That they will be scared of, or, or, you know, of airplanes, of restaurants, of sports events they might not, not want to leave their house for a very very long time and you need to recognize that you know i've already said to my you know the, the executive team at signia that we must anticipate that even if you know lockdown was lifted immediately um, approximately 30 percent of our staff would say they're not coming back to the office you know, they've been working remotely. Yes. They want to continue to work remotely. And, you know, half of them will have genuine fears behind it. And and half of them like to lay around in their pajamas the whole day. <laughs> so, you know, once you get used to that kind of a lifestyle, I think it's difficult to kind of, you know, get back into a business suit, get in a car, be stuck in traffic for an hour, you know, and, and work in an office environment. So I think that you will have a whole you know, kind of uh, convergence of of these kind of issues. You know, airplane travel. You're quite right. I mean, I couldn't care less. And by the way, you know, I have a very deeply suppressed immune system because I've got, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and I take very strong medication which suppresses my immune system. So in theory, I'm in a high-risk group. And nonetheless, I will very happily get on an airplane. I'll take whatever precautionary measures I need to and I will self-isolate on the other end. Um so, so you know, I am all for you know i'm I'm not you know stupid enough to say unlock everything because life needs to go back to normal it it will not I'm just um uh, you know a very firm believer in data and evidence based measured approaches to lockdowns to lockdowns of economies and to weighing up the various factors um against each other as opposed to completely leaning as South Africa has towards we've got to protect human life, human life only insofar as the risk is posed by COVID-19, not by other diseases or violence. Um, And so we are going to do absolutely everything in our power to to protect this and to help with everything else. Um, You know, that's not a measured approach. That's that's ridiculous and um, the long term consequences are you know terrifying
0: let's talk about what you've just said when you say well some people are going to uh, wallow around in their pajamas and not want to get on airplanes again and they've got used to this uh, this lifestyle of course as an investment professional which is you, which is what you are which is what your wealth and your success has been based on and it's sort of moved in a different uh, not a different direction but there is new facets of your success that have, have come to the fore over the last few years as South Africa has been on a downward spiral but I was speaking to a fund manager the other day or rather a wealth manager the other day and he was talking very very enthusiastically about one of your funds which was to do with what I understood was to be it was it was based on science and based on academics Mm -hmm. and based on Mm -hmm. uh, an educational institution by the name of Oxford University so that (laughs) that's played into your hands of course so well done on that one maybe you could tell us more
1: so um you know by a little bit of a stealth we um well i i set up the london office uh, for signia last year and part of that was premised on the fact that we wanted to, to set up an um, and kind of impact investing fund and in that search i came across a company called oxford sciences innovation which was the best kept secret ever and what that company is is you know, the, to to give it a little bit of a context um you know universities typically produce you know, phenomenal IP and phenomenal patents and phenomenal research. But as academic institutions, they are very poor at commercializing that IP. Um, in the United States, most universities are surrounded by what I call, you know, vultures, which is usually venture capital funds. And whoever, you know, at a university produces a good piece of research, the vultures descend and... Um, you know, grab the founders and and set up companies outside of the university domain. But uh, in the UK, the same thing has not happened. Um, And so in 2015, some of the leading fund managers in um, London uh, got together, approached Oxford and proposed a joint venture, which is Oxford Sciences Innovation, whereby they would inject 600 million pounds of capital into a company and that company would then have the exclusive rights to commercialize any IP that came out of Oxford. And, um, you know, there's certain economics around uh, patents and innovations that originate out of universities. Typically, you know, the academic staff responsible for the innovation um, own 50% of the patent rights, university owns 50%. And in this case, um, the, the equation kind of shifted slightly in that when there is a really good idea worthy of being patented, be it a new vaccine, be it a new drug, be it a new medical device or a new approach to doing something, um, the academic staff owns 50 percent, Oxford University would own 25 percent stake and OSI owns 25 percent stake. That's in an idea which was then worthy of turning into a company and spinning it out as a company. Mm. And of course, Then Oxford Sciences Innovation as a company takes responsibility for setting up the company, hiring the management team, and nurturing each one of those companies through to kind of growth and maturity, and over time injects capital, more capital into that company. Other investors come along and invest in those spin-outs. So over the past five years, that Oxford Sciences Innovation uh, company has spun out 80 different uh, companies. In which it has stakes in you know, ranging from 30 to 60 percent. Um, and uh, some of those companies are absolutely amazing. Some of them have you know, grown up and are becoming kind of grown children, some of them are fairly young. Um, and OSI keeps commercializing. More and more patents um, are coming out of Oxford. It usually aims to commercialize about 10 different ideas every single year. So what you're saying is that you're, you're,
0: this whole description that you've just enthusiastically Stop. spoken about over the last two minutes, you're just monetizing very, very giant brains.
1: Absolutely. And of course, they benefit from it for the first time. They are actually able to to benefit financially from the very giant brains. So OSI itself as a company was a very much of a closed club in terms of the shareholding of that company. Um, and, you know, buying shares in OSI was virtually impossible because the founders were not selling. Um, but last year was quite a tumultuous year for active asset management in the UK. A lot of money moved out of active asset management into passive mandates. And, you know, a few managers came under huge amount of stress. One of them was, uh, Neil Woodford, Woodford funds. Um, and, um, you know, I was in the UK. I knew about OSI and I knew that he, for instance, had quite a large pocket of those trades. And I approached him and I bought his stress and then, I struck a few more deals and bought more and more of those OSI shares. And we now own, through funds we've set up, we own 16% of OSI and we are the largest shareholder in OSI. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, one of the spin out companies um, within the OSI stable, Vasitek, is involved in that uh, COVID 19 vaccine development project, which yeah. is called the Oxford vaccine. Um, but that is actually originating uh, well both from Oxford in terms of IP but Vasitech, as the spin out company, is actually enabling the production uh, of the vaccine and they 'll now by mid June because it was a spin out company which already um, was focused on vaccine development and in particular on MERS, so they had heck of a head start on anybody else starting you know to, to develop a vaccine. Which um, so means that that'll be, that'll
0: be monetizing the removal of misery for the, for the whole world. And I understand be- for what I'm seeing is that the Oxford is is probably ahead of the 100%. race. There may be 100 to 120 yeah. companies trying to develop a vaccine 100%. at the moment. but Oxford is right up there, probably in the top three.
1: Oxford is right up there. Um, it has a heck of a heck start. It's already in phase two human trials with 600 volunteers. And as I said, they will know by mid-June whether the vaccine works or not. Now, the vaccine itself is not going to be an initial money spinner because Oxford University would never want to be associated with profiteering from a human murder. So the, the commercials work, um, uh, as follows and that is as long as world health organization has declares you know COVID-19 as a pandemic it, for 12 months thereafter the vaccine would be manufactured and sold at cost so that no profit would be made but thereafter it could become a commercial vaccine um so so that's what I'm most interested in suddenly I'm very involved in the you know this kind of world of healthcare innovation and uh, trajectories of healthcare, life sciences, artificial intelligence, technology emerging and emerging out of the world's leading university. So that's very exciting. But I'm stuck in South Africa.
0: (laughs) It is very exciting. You won't be stuck there for very long. And well done for owning that fund that you've just um, spoken about, because it sounds as though It it can only go from strength to strength. Um, Thank you for your insights, political, social and economic and corporate, of course. And also, please uh, take care, Magda, because after what you said about you you being a vulnerable person because of certain medication that you're taking, I think you really ought to take a little bit more care of yourself and maybe think a little bit less about jumping (laughs) on an aeroplane, certainly in the the middle part of the aeroplane.
1: You, uh, you, you only live one life, and hence uh, you've got to live it to the full.
0: Very good. Thank you very much for your time. That's Magda Wierzitska, who is the founder and CEO of the Signia Group, the JSE-listed Signia Group, speaking to us for the moment anyway from Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or position